Yeah, I'm not sure why I've come in video. How, how do I turn it off? Um... <laughs> <laughs> if you press the camera button, even this pissed old hack baffled by new technology. <laughs> Wait, no, I've, I've t- okay. all right, we're good, we're good. I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's guilty dead. Well done. <laughs> yeah, okay. I got to allow Mark to feel like he's a real wizard at technology <laughs> So Yeah. This is the kind of service I provide for our guests. Well, yeah. we we get a real journalist on the show and he's he's helping us with tech support as well. This counts the fairer than that, can you? <laughs> opposing the government and opposing the conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Who are the hard left? What's it? Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are in the you know ascendancy with. Within the Labour Party, who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were right to right wing. The hard left agenda. Printing money, nationalisation without compensation. That's all. Hard left wing position. Hard left, the hard left. The hard left, 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 Right, I guess we've we've got to know each other a little bit now. Uh, large, albeit largely talking about Mike Gates. Um, I mean, I, I mean, Mark, is that like you you wanted to like know a little bit about us? I guess. Yeah. What do you want to know now that I'm I'm here? I'm all ears. Well, I'm fascinated because because you I came across you quite by chance on the Twitter, and I was I'm in mean, here in New York. I work for the United Nations, although not for much longer. So I'm I'm allowed to speak to you without being in trouble. Because oh, that explains a lot, yeah. Yeah. Talk <laughs> to irascible uh, left-wing media types. But anyway, so um, so I came across you on Twitter. And of course, you know, the nightmare of Gapes came bowling across the Atlantic to me. Uh, I've been kind of watching this kind of horrendous internalised car crash engineered really by people like Mike and others, to my mind, on the Labour right what used to be called the Labour Right. I don't know what they've become now, but... I, th- that... I think we can call it the Labour Right. Can we do that? I mean, On I know... this show, we certainly can. Do Okay, well, I mean, Mike's gone off <laughs> to another uh, party thing. I don't yeah. know, party thing's kind of transmogrified a few times and sort of splintered and split. Oddly enough, like <laughs> the sort of trot groups that Mike is kind of obsessed by, it's kind <laughs> of filled with huge internal bickering that's... The leader glorified in some kind of Stalinesque way, Chuka Umuna, seems <laughs> transmogrified. And the last I saw was describing himself as shadow foreign secretary for the Liberal Democrats. Mm. I mean, the whole thing is utterly farcical, of course. Watching yeah. all of this and watching the puerile antics of some of these people and also the way sections of the British media lap this trivia up. Um, yeah. Kind of really wound me up, like a lot of people, I suppose, because, look, the thing is, at the end of the day, I've been a member of the Labour Party since I was 15. I've always accepted who's been elected leader of the Labour Party in that time. There are some leaders, particularly one, Tony Blair, who I kind of served with, if you like, on the, or under on the National Executive Committee for eight or so years, who mm. I really did not approve of at all. But I still accept them. And you have debates and votes and all the rest of it in a temperate 
measured way. And when I saw what Mike and the others were up to, I thought, well, thank God you're around to throw a bit of levity into it. So, you know, I have to ask you as, you know, people considerably younger than me, what has drawn you to this examination of Gapes and Gapesology? Uh, and how is this sort of this figure of this this man who once looked like the disheveled old lefty he apparently was at Cambridge University, how this figure became so consequential? <laughs> well, I think... I mean, even before I joined the Real Politics team, you'd mentioned him a few times as this sort of guy who likes to get in spats with left wingers on Twitter, basically. The pugnacious sort of... Mike Gapes, as he yeah. was referred to in that New Statesman article, where yeah, he yes. said he'd listen to us. This sort of combative <laughs> man that doesn't quite realise how faintly ridiculous he always comes across. Yeah, it's not and that then... faint, is it? Well, it's not faint. No, it's <laughs> even from a distance, it comes across faint. But then yeah. he's done that, the famous, the immortal milk speech. Um, and the reality is you have fields on both sides of the border, cows that move backwards and forwards, farmhouses that are divided, and we have institutional structures like the veterinary organisations and you have the milk that is taken from cows in the south and taken from cows in the north put together in the same factory and then it is mixed together with whiskey and it comes out as milk. Late 2017 he did that? It was, yeah. No, late yeah. November. And we've kind of piggybacked on that with some videos and it's all taken off from there, really. Um, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I've, I've known Mike Gapes off and on. I can't say that I was ever knew him particularly well, but I used to bump into him quite regularly. I mean, the thing the thing is with Mike, he, I always sort of quite liked him. He's always got a cheery smile about him. But <laughs> That's like, true. I've got this feeling that he really disapproved of me. And oh. I was then... I mean, you know, old, older listeners may remember Tribune, although Tribune, of course, has come back under Ronan, the new editor, is doing a fantastic job. But Tribune and the left under Blair, we were kind of really beaten about a bit, but we did still try and stand up, you know, against the Iraq war and privatisation and all the rest of it. And I don't think Mike really approved of me. He, he really didn't approve of me. And so I've got no personal animus against Mike, but I just, if, if he was to say to me now, Mark, you know, because actually, to be fair, he hasn't blocked me. <laughs> you know, he hasn't blocked me on Twitter. But if I have to say to Mike, like, you know, if do you do you want do you know what I really what I what I really think? Do you want to hear what I really think? If you'd said yes, which I doubt, but if you said yes, I say, Mike, the thing is, I think you've become a hack. I think you've been a hack for too long. You've worked for the party, man and boy, which is a good thing in many ways, but you've been there for just too long, and you've become a little bit bitter, a bit curdled. You know, when milk. <laughs> goes a bit curdled. Mike's got a bit curdled. And really, he needs to take a break and do something completely different. He'll feel so much better for it. And this kind of constant... Because imagine what it must be like to be Mike. <laughs> I often do. <laughs> to be... He, you know, he must switch on the radio, whatever he does. And think, ah, Corbyn! Ah! Mr. Seamus Moon! <laughs> In a moment... And Mr. Seamus Milne, in my opinion, has been dissembling and attempting to divert attention from the real cause and the real culprit, which is the Putin regime in Moscow. All these people are so ferocious about it. Yeah. It can't be good for him. It really can't be good for him. Yeah. So he needs to have a break. He really does need to have a break. 
<laughs> I, I, I think that's that's pretty fair. So should we do an introduction proper now that we've had that great little opening gambit about Mike Gapes? So, I, th- yeah. I think we'll we'll, re- we'll no doubt return to Gapes at some point in this discussion. <laughs> but as there's, always there's, there's always more ground to cover with the big man. But, um, All roads lead to Gapes. but yeah welcome to real politic everyone this is a very very special edition because we have got a very very special guest in tow our guest today is none other than mark seddon not mark seddon the nice young man who some of you might know off twitter but mark seddon the nice somewhat older man who some of you might know off Twitter, who currently works as a media advisor to the president of the UN General Assembly, who's a former speechwriter for the UN's former Secretary General, Ban Ki-moon, former UN correspondent for Al Jazeera, and a former editor of Tribune, representative of the left on the Labour National Executive Committee for many years, and a guest on our spiritual forefathers. Have I got news for you? (laughs) (laughs) comrades mark seddon great to have you here mark well thank you very much for that introduction i don't think it was long enough i feel (laughs) i I feel if you're going to do a proper introduction you need to do a study of central committee members of the chinese communist party (laughs) who who, who have worked as ministers for agriculture because then you'd get a proper sweep of their uh, (laughs) long and tedious history doing whatever it is that they've been doing but thank you Thank you very much. It's very, it's very nice to be with you. And of course, I'm joined again by Real Politic team's most recent recruit, our director of strategy and communications, brackets, Mr. Seamus Milne. <gasps> Geraint, at Wario Tifo. Hello. Great to have you in tow again, as always, man. And sorry, my introduction for you wasn't quite as long as Mark's one, but I, 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 th- I feel like people are getting to know you by now. Yeah, had a few appearances. I haven't got you into trouble in the Daily Mail yet, so it's probably <laughs> safe to start treating me as just part of the furniture now. Yeah, <laughs> you're really starting to sort of blend into your surroundings. Yeah, I'll take that as a compliment. I think <laughs> go either way, really. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. so we were shocked when somebody as reputable, really, as Mark agreed to come on this very uh, disreputable podcast. <laughs> but as you will have heard in that little introduction, you know, Mark has actually been very supportive of us so once again mark we can only thank you for gracing our show with your presence yeah oh no don't say that that sounds like like a welcome for the comrade stalin (laughs) thank you very very much and i was delighted to hear my old friend seamus there because actually um i don't know if i'm uh, if if you'll let me have uh, 10 seconds to tell you this little story because the last time i spoke with my friend seamus who i've known for many many years and when he was on The Guardian and also when we were battling to save the original Clause 4 from Blair's depredations. Oh, of course, um, yeah. He did actually call me about two years ago because I was just publishing a book with Francis Beckett called The Strange Rebirth of... This is a plug, by the way, folks. Oh, yeah, of oh, yeah. I've got this yeah, book, actually. I forgot yeah. to mention that. So it's the, the book was called, is called The Strange Rebirth of Labour... Jeremy Corbyn and The Strange Rebirth of Labour England. I co-authored this book with Francis Beckett. Anyway, Seamus had got to hear about this book and was a little concerned about a chapter in the book that Francis had written, although Seamus hadn't read about it. Anyway, the long and the short of it is he called me up 
as I was driving through South Yorkshire and as I was near what had been Hatfield Colliery, the colliery is still there, but there's obviously nobody left working there. Mm. Anyway, so Seamus phoned up and I thought, Christ, it's Seamus on the phone. I better get <laughs> on the road. And I drove, I got off, I went into a lay-by and, I, and Seamus started talking to me about the book, saying, what is this chapter? I said, well, it's about, um, it's about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And, you know, we don't really think just, we think this has been exaggerated and blah, blah, blah. But there's a whole chapter, he said. I said, no, no, Seamus, there's two chapters. What? Two chapters <laughs> on anti-Semitism? No, I didn't believe it. And just as he was working himself up, and I know you're there, Seamus, I have to be very careful what I say, but just as he was working there was a knock He's on He's always my, watching. Yeah, always watching. There was a knock on my window, and I looked up, and it was a policeman. And he said, uh, <laughs> He said, said, I wound my window down. He said, you're right, sir. I said, yes, thank you very much, officer. He said, well, the thing is, a lot of people come down here and commit suicide. And I said, well, well, I can assure you, officer, I'm very happy. And uh, I'm not going to commit suicide. I could have said that I was very happy because I had a conversation with my old friend Seamus because he's very, very difficult to get on the phone if you try to call him yourself. Oh, okay. Yeah, I can imagine. But you must know this, but you've obviously been more successful because you have him there. (laughs) (laughs) It's more really that Geraint is sort of channeling the spirit of Mr. Seamus Milne. We can't quite get the real thing, but we can try and... um... We, we, yes. can, we can try and imitate the culture and practices of Mr. Seamus Mill. <laughs> and the bootleg Seamus Mill. Yeah, yeah, that, that's it, really. Yeah. We had a transatlantic blip there. I don't know what happened. Sabotage, probably. But anyway, yeah. I'm, I, Russia. can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, I can hear Russians. you just fine. Yeah. Russians. Yes. Seamus is tapping the lines at this point, yeah. <laughs> You'd think Russia would be helping us, really. I've personally always got time for a good Seamus Milne story. Mm-hmm. Well, I've always liked Seamus, and I'll always stand up for him. I don't like the way people are attacked. I tell you what, the other thing is you often see is, and we, you know, I didn't always agree with Neil Kinnock when he was leader and what have you, but what people always used to do is instead of dumping on the leader, they always dump on the advisors. Mm. Because what they really mm. wanted to dump on the leader. So the advisors always become, I mean, the advisors are never perfect. And of course, I have to say that, I mean, I, I'm just thinking about it, you know, because I've been active in the Labour Party since the late 70s. I joined in 1977, I, and that was Jim, when Jim Callaghan was Prime Minister. I cannot remember, Michael Foote got a terrible time from the mainstream media, Yeah, but mm. Jeremy Corbyn, by far, by far, has had the worst. And, of course, his advisers have been all caught up in that. And that, and that... However tough you are, however experienced you are, it's inevitably going to drive you into something of a bunker. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't blame people for not always getting it right. I just think that it's just been unrelenting, absolutely yeah. unrelenting. Yeah. I, I, you know, okay, I've been here back in the UN for a year, back in New York, so I can just watch from afar. But I think it's a profoundly depressing. It must be profoundly depressing for a lot of people in the Labour Party, whether they're from the left, right, or centre, but who essentially want to see a Labour government to have this kind of bile that's trotted out, utter trivia. Very, very rarely any serious yeah. examination of what the Labour Party is offering in terms of an alternative. Very little of that. It's the same here with Bernie Sanders and the Democratic Party in the left here. Yeah. To mm. the same extent, I have to tell you. Yeah, you see nonsense lines in the US, like whenever Trump does something bad, it's, oh, are you happy now, Susan Sarandon? It's like, (laughs) maybe Hillary should take some responsibility for not catering her campaign purely to Susan Sarandon if she was indeed the deciding factor 
in 2016. <laughs> but you'd, you'd think there were more issues at play there. Yeah. But your point about the febrile attacks on the Labour leadership, including so many kind of proxy attacks on Corbyn via attacks on his advisors. I mean, we laugh at Gapes's Mr. Seamus Milne speech, but that is really kind of an unprecedented thing to have MPs. This was before Gapes left the Labour Party. So to have MPs kind of standing up in Parliament and attacking party staff like that is quite a remarkable development, really. I, th- I mean, I think, is there a long history I, of that? No, I, th- I think you are absolutely right. I mean, when Tony Blair was leader of the opposition, when he became elected leader, they were very, very quick in pushing through a parliamentary Labour Party code of conduct. And it was quite clear about the sort of behaviour that was permissible and not. And everybody mm. expects, and of course, Mike Gabes and all the rest of it, are always happy to point out that Jeremy Corbyn was a serial rebel. Yeah, mm. of course a serial rebel, but he wasn't a serial rebel on Labour's front benches. But nonetheless, there was a view, I think, taken when Corbyn was elected leader that, you know, he was not going to come down and crush MPs every time they rebelled, because otherwise he might be accused of being a bit of a hypocrite. (laughs) But what has happened is that I think there's been a complete breakdown in any discipline. And frankly, some of these people should have been called out and disciplined much earlier on and quite harshly. I think if you're going to abuse people and make unfounded allegations and actually, do you know, what? I think it's getting to the stage where some of the accusations that are thrown around about various people are frankly libelous. Yeah. It's always very difficult for, pol- I mean, it's, it's actually a libel, British libel law makes it rather more difficult for public figures to sue. And I don't think public figures necessarily want to do that because you get caught up with this and it's expensive and on it goes. Yeah. And yeah. But the discipline, I mean, frankly, I mean, we look, we're making some jokes about Gapesy, but of course, Gapesy is no longer in the Labour Party. So no. we, can, we can make jokes about yeah. Gapesy. <laughs> but if you'd been in the Labour Party, we could continue to make Gapesy a bit of a joke figure without being excessively insulting and making absurd claims about what he believes in. We can disagree. I disagree fundamentally with his views on nuclear weapons, yeah. for instance. And I think he supported the Iraq War. I think he's essentially yes. a, a sort of a Cold War warrior when, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know it's bizarre. But anyway, <laughs> this is where we're at. And I think there's been a total breakdown. And I think some of these MPs who attack the leader personally, in the most unpleasant terms, you know, they need to be disciplined. I mean, I think when people go for Corbyn on a personal level rather than really taking on the left's ideas like they clearly want to, they show themselves up as completely unserious time and time again. Ah, God, hang on, I had had a thing on the tip of my... Whilst you're you're gathering your thoughts, I mean, the interesting (laughs) thing to me is what they call the centrists. I love all of this, you know, how these people become the centrists for the media. There's nothing centrist about them they're on the right <laughs> yeah. on the right of politics you know, they may not be as free marketeers as, as thatcher but but you know they're, they're off there they're off there they're on the right yeah you're, so you're right. they don't actually have a political alternative all they can do is from time to time say oh david Miliband should come back and save us all <laughs> <laughs> you know think, we're going to touch on Miliband a little bit later by the way oh, oh are we okay okay <laughs> Well, actually, if we do, I have a little anecdote to tell about him. So yeah. we can get, we'll, oh, yes. keep, we'll keep your listeners in just a little bit longer, I hope. If they, yep. can be, yep. they can bear to wait for this anecdote about David Miliband, which you <laughs> just tell me when you want me to release it. So another <laughs> f- funny thing involving him eating a banana. 
No, it's involving <laughs> him and a, and a biro that exploded. But I, you oh know, wow, just, okay, that's like some CIA trying to kill <laughs> Fidel Castro kind of shit. We'll get to that. I wanted to say I've I've remembered my point now, but <laughs> when Gates and Co, like you say, accuse Corbyn of disloyalty, I, I mean with with some just grounds i suppose they accuse corbyn of disloyalty against previous labor leaderships but i mean it goes back to this old seamus milne article for the guardian that i believe garant has as his cover photo (laughs) on twitter which is called they don't realize why they're hated and that's what (laughs) seamus wrote about i believe the west and foreign policy oh Um, But it works perfectly well in the context of right-wing Labour figures who have a go at Jeremy Corbyn for voting against the worst new Labour policies without realising that's the exact reason that he's popular. Yes, (laughs) I absolutely have it in one. And do you know, as you know, well, Jeremy Corbyn did not start out in politics as this kind of hyper ambitious bag carrier for some Labour MP wanting to grease his way up the greasy pole. Mm. Uh, Mm. I mean, he and a few others came into it, I think, for really quite genuine political reasons. And they usually were on the receiving end. They usually got defeated as the new Labour years went on and as the left candidates were effectively purged, chucked out, stopped or whatever. They became the kind of last survivors. They became the sort of, if you like, the straggling few elm trees that escaped Dutch elm disease. They carried on <laughs> shooting in the hedges, shooting up little uh, little branches and things. They carried on growing and then they reemerged because they were all that were left. So Jeremy <laughs> Corbyn became leader because it was his turn to stand. John McDonnell had done it before. Diane Abbott had done it before. If there had been a half-decent left-wing tribunite still around or a half-decent left-wing tribune group in Parliament, the candidate might have come from there. But mm. frankly, as you know, because you, you've been there, is that after all of these years of New Labour and Blairism and all the rest of it, and not just in Britain, but right across Europe where the social democratic parties are in crisis with just a few exceptions, people wanted something very, very different. And we got it. And yeah. we got manifesto and that manifesto was a winning manifesto in so many ways and i really really do think that we could have won that last election had we not had the gapeses and all the rest of them yeah carping and whinging and whining away throughout yeah yeah that's you had a few labor mps if i remember rightly basically saying you know they were standing for labor in a general election saying they didn't believe corbyn should ever be prime minister yes and I don't see, how, under any circumstances, how they should be allowed to stand and run as, as part yeah. of their platform as candidates, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You imagine yeah. if someone on the left was as blatant and outspoken as that at that particular strategic time against Blair or Brown during their years, they would have been either deselected on the spot or a couple of months after the election, you know, as soon as it was safe to do so. Yeah, I mean, yeah. very, very, very quickly, there's an Al Jazeera 
thing from 2009 on YouTube, and it's from the very lowest point of Gordon Brown's time as Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. And their Labour MP guest is none other than Jeremy Corbyn. And they ask Jeremy Corbyn, should Gordon Brown resign? And this was when Miliband and James Pennell were trying to do their, you know, well, James Pennell really, Miliband sort of melted, but they were trying to do their coup against Gordon Brown, I think. And yeah. they asked Corbyn, should Gordon Brown step down? And he, he said, no, that would be destabilising. There's now a feeding frenzy of the media in Britain saying somebody has got to go and the Prime Minister must be got rid of. For example, three days ago they were saying there was an email circulating amongst MPs uh, asking if they were prepared to sign it to say Gordon must go. Every newspaper led the front page saying that. I checked with a number of colleagues in Parliament. Nobody had ever seen or heard of this email. It may well exist somewhere, I don't know, but it seemed to be something that was more akin to one or two MPs talking to the media than any serious backbench movement. What I would put to you, though, and I'm going to show these numbers to our viewers, unfortunately you won't be able to see them, but this is from a YouGov Sunday Times poll, which was taken on March the 15th, which is, of course, well before this current scandal. These are the numbers. Only 3% of respondents thought Gordon Brown was performing very well as Prime Minister. 3%, that is. 33 said he was doing fairly well. But then you've got this big chunk, 60%, who either went with fairly or very badly. I'll come back to you for this one, Jeremy Corbyn, because we are focusing obviously on what's happening right now and whether Gordon Brown should go right now, but the fact is his popularity was on the way in any way. Well, his popularity was very low at that time. I'm not sure exactly what it is today, but we don't have government by opinion poll. We have government by parliament, and governments are supposed to be accountable to parliament, and party leaders should be accountable to their members. Now, I have lots of disagreements with Gordon Brown, many, many disagreements on privatisation of the post office, the war in Iraq, and a whole lot of other things. But I'm not very comfortable with the idea that a few self-serving cabinet ministers who seem to be unrequited in their ambition should be allowed to dominate the headlines in order to push him out when they're offering no political alternative whatsoever. Whereas the current crop of Labour MPs don't really seem to be concerned with destabilising things so much. No, they positively want it. I mean, that's, that's an interesting anecdote because... I think that demonstrates essentially the loyalty to the Labour Party of both Corbyn and Brown. You know, obviously, I, I know Gordon Brown. I've worked worked for him. And Gordon Brown, of course, he's, I, mean, I differ from him in so many different ways politically. That's immaterial. But he, I mean, you'd obviously he'd say about Jeremy, he quite likes Jeremy Corbyn, I think. He said, the thing is, he's, he's, he was always very difficult. <laughs> it was always very difficult. You can, I, you can definitely imagine Gordon Brown saying that. Yeah, but you see, the <laughs> thing is that he would understand, like every previous Labour leader before him, other than Blair, that, um, and it's that old line of, that came from Harold Wilson that, you know, the Labour, for the Labour Party to fly, it needed a, a left and a right wing. And what we've had for the trouble is, the trouble is, as you know, with the Blairites and the Labour rights since Corbyn won that first election as leader, is the right wing flapping in the opposite bloody direction. <laughs> it's been taking the Labour bird down. And yes. that's the truth of it. And I, but that, that anecdote is very telling because, you know, yes, of course, Brown and Corbyn, chalk and cheese, they would have, of course, voted against one another. They would never have supported each other's candidatures. But at the same time, 
at least both respected each other's place in the movement because it had to be broad enough. Now, these ones who have gone off to the Change UK or still carp and whinge and go running to the... Pre- and, and some of them, of course, never allow their names to be used. Yeah. But it's, it's so it's so, it's so destabilising. It's just... It's, it's, it's bovine, actually, which t- takes us almost back towards Gates and Milk. Yeah, uh, cows in the south or cows in the north. I suppose yeah. both. Some cows in the Midlands. That's always been a strongholder for Labour, right? Yeah, yeah, bovine. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Do we want to like maybe look back at your history on the left, Mark, and some of the different things you've done throughout your uh, illustrious career? But I mean, there's a few things I want to touch on. Grant and I were saying we quite like to hear some old Tribune war stories. Of course, we want to get back to Mr. David Miliband, but maybe that will come a little bit. <laughs> A little bit later, after if we're kind of go, going to go back a bit earlier. Well, Tribune, I suppose, do you know, I mean, the, the first, I became editor in 1992. John Smith was still leader of the Labour Party, and he actually sent me a very nice note saying, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting you. I hope that Tribune can take part in Labour's policy making. It was very, sort of rather boring letter, but it was very nice of him to write nonetheless. <laughs> Sounds um, magnanimous, also, yeah. I, I got that letter. I got an invitation from Mr. Ben to go around and see him in his Notting Hill basement, and we listened Ooh, excellent. to excellent. <laughs> Had you always been a big Ben supporter? Oh, absolutely. When I first joined the Labour Party, when I was 15, I went marching against the cuts, and Mr. Ben, this was in Trowbridge in Wiltshire, and there was Mr. Ben, and I admired his hat, and he said, well, you must get <laughs> mine. So Mr. Ben... No, I've always been an ardent Ben supporter and Benite. And so to have that invitation to go, and I'll never forget it, because he lived, he used to live in Kensington in a townhouse, and all the Benite operations were in the basement. And so I knocked on his front <laughs> door. At the time when you walked into his front garden, he had this kind of wicker shed. He, he was falling to pieces, but there's this tramp living in there. And Mr. Ben was saying, well, he, of course, she moved in. I can't do anything about him or help him out. You know, give him food and drink and what have you. Anyway, so I knocked on the door and then I suddenly Mr. Ben and his pipe, his pipe was in his mouth. He popped his head out the window. And he said, well, come on down then. And I went down and I just remember we, we talked talk about all sorts of things. And he said, right, I want you to listen to this. And it was Stafford Cripps's budget speech from whenever on a scratchy old record. So we, oh, we wow. listened in reverence to that. Democracy is safe in Britain so long as governments will tell the people the facts upon which they can form their own judgments. 18 months ago, when the economic crisis was at its worst, I told you that if we faced the facts and took the necessary steps with determination, we should come through. You agreed to take them, and we have come a very long way since then. Now I tell you that if we continue in the same determined way, we shall come right through to better times. More than that, you'll come out on top in a way that will preserve the freedom and decency of your living. And then as part of this sort of initiation into Tribune, I got a call from Scargill's office, Arthur Scargill's office. And they said, well, Mr. Scargill would like to meet you. So I went over to then he had a NUM flat in the Barbican in London. And I went over to see Arthur in this canteen. And Arthur spent the next hour lecturing me and asking me questions about why I thought that the Tories were deciding to completely shut the coal industry down and what have you. And then I got this. The, the third one was this call from this not particularly well known, but the media were already loving this guy. This guy called Tony Blair, who was shadow <laughs> employment secretary. He said, 
Yeah, yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd like, I wonder if you'd like to come round. You know, it's very important. You know, I, Tribune, Tribune reports our side, and you know, and we can work together. So I went round to his house in Islington, and the door was opened by this woman who I took to be Cherie. I said, "Hello, Cherie," and and she, this woman said, "Well, no, actually, I work for Tony and Cherie." So that was my okay. first blooper. But then beside <laughs> Tony's study, I remember this. Tony was sitting in this cardigan and. And he had these books, and there was, I remember thinking, well, maybe he's not all that bad because there's a book about the history of the Lancashire area NUM. But then okay. I realised it's all for show. It must be all for show because at that time, I don't know if you remember, it was a long time ago. The Tories were going to privatise Caledonian McBrain, the shipping service that services the Western Isles and was publicly owned. And you know, without it being publicly owned, there wouldn't be a shipping service to half of those islands. And he was weirdly kind of hostile to any idea of public ownership. And I thought this is very strange coming from somebody like Tony Blair, who is the shadow employment secretary. And the more I got <laughs> to talk to him and the more I got to know him, I suddenly realized that he really didn't have very much in common, I thought, with the Labour Party at all. And then I had to arrange a meeting on a different occasion with Northeast Labour MPs, with the National Coal Board, of trying to keep these collieries open in the Northeast. And Tony Blair came along. The chairman of the coal board wasn't really interested in all these other mining MPs, but they liked Tony very much, and they invited him back for special meetings and all that. I became very, very suspicious about Tony from the outset, I have to say. But that's so a million he, miles away from he, he appealed to the managerial types. Yes, I suppose to be... I mean, look, the thing is, you have to cast your mind back. Labour had been out of power for 18 years. Tony Blair was eminently plausible. He, he was a nice chap. You know, he didn't, there was nothing to upset the apple. I mean, frankly, the thing is, if only Tony had been a bit like Clement Attlee, you know, and pretended just the, the moderate bit was cover for the yeah, hardline socialist underneath him. He really, really never thought, he never had the confidence because he never had been a socialist, of course, to believe that you could actually win on a left-leaning programme. And yet yeah. by the time of that election... The electorate, as Tony Benn would always point out, was far to the left of the Labour Party. I remember we had this Tribune, pre-election Tribune rally in Brown's restaurant, which was pretty posh for us in London. And there were a number of speakers. Michael Foote was there, Barbara Castle and Robin oh, Cook. Wow. And Robin Cook predicted this Labour landslide. This was literally four or five days before the landslide happened. But he was immediately hauled in the following day by Blair and by Campbell, Alistair Campbell. By the way, we sh Oof. you should do a whole podcast about Alistair Campbell. If you... <laughs> yeah, we should actually. Oh, Generally, we, we just call idea. him hated war criminal. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> you, I'm your man to talk about Alistair Campbell. But anyway, so Alistair Campbell <laughs> and Tony Blair gave Robin Crook a dressing down for saying that there was going to be a Labour landslide. Because, of course, as we know now, Roy Jenkins and Paddy Poundstown and all the rest of them had been nipping round to Downing Street whilst people like Dennis Skinner weren't allowed in, even through the tradesman's entrance. And they mm. were persuading Tony that they could do a kind of lab-lib-dem deal. And yeah. Tony was very yeah. excited by this idea, of course, because he thought that if he did that, he could then dispense with the likes of people such as Jay Corbyn. Mm. Yes. So get further excuse to not fingers. lead the left, yeah. That was what that was all about. The Tribune was a great thing, and uh, and I'm so I'm so glad it's come back. By the way, I don't. Are you Tribune subscribers? I am. I am. Um, yeah, actually. Yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent. It's a fine thing, and Ronan is the new editor. He's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, I and think also, by very the way, good. just to give them a plug, at this year's Labour Party conference, they are bringing back the Tribune Rally. It has oh. 
June rally is coming back. I'm probably breaking all sorts of confidences by telling you. But anyway, <laughs> it's too late. So it's going to happen. They're gonna, it's going to be a big deal. It's coming back. I'm so pleased. I'm sure they could do it for plug, you know, Tribune, the world transformed. I think they need a hand up yeah. from, a, you know, a, a huge brand like Real Politic. <laughs> <laughs> or an even bigger brand such as Mark Seddon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is the 21st century. We're all brands now. <laughs> so you found yourself in an oppositional stance towards the Labour leadership during your time as editor of Tribune. But the same year that you became Tribune editor, you had been working for Gordon Brown, hadn't you? During the 92 election, it says on Wikipedia. Yes, does it say that on Wikipedia? Did, did I forget to take that bit out? <laughs> you've, you've got a quite extensive Wikipedia page. I mean, it's not the biggest, but it's certainly... No, I'm loath to talk about it because my sister phoned me up once and she said, have you seen your Wikipedia? I, I, I hardly ever looked at the thing, honestly. Honestly, I'm telling you this, honestly. <laughs> You're not all over cam writing your own been... Wikipedia page. <laughs> like, been, it had been hacked. And oh, horrendous no. things happened on it, but Russia. no, of course the, the, the uh, that Russians... was probably Oliver Cam as well. Actually, yeah, that was probably Oliver Cam. <laughs> he's, he's been banned from editing any Wikipedia entries relating to British personalities or political oh, events. Really? Oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> Oh, the sorry, account... there's an account that he claims is not him, but yeah, the uh... account that people suspect to be Oliver Cam. Yeah, with or good reason. Oliver Cam and friends, you know. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yes. Well, that's interesting. So, no, no, Gordon, no, Gordon Brown, I did work for him. The, I volunteered to work for him in the general election. He was then working closely with John Smith, John, and he was the shadow chancellor. And my job, he used to say, right, Mark, Mark, I, what, what I want you to do is go to the Conservative Party press conference, because they used to have them every morning, and they were chaired by Chris Patton. I want you to go there, and you can ask a question. And I said, well, well OK, Gordon, but I won't necessarily know what question to ask is it well i wouldn't worry about that because we're going to prepare each and every question for you so i'd go, I'd go into the conservative party morning press conferences in that election and, and ask questions as from tribune because i was already writing for tribune and technically i was you know i'd ask tribune to give me a press pass or something like that so yeah i was, yeah. I was playing a du- dual and duplicitous role <laughs> You know, I think that's the kind of thing that we could possibly learn from the new Leal yeah. Yeah, like exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, a bold gambit, I think. <laughs> but you were on the NEC for many years as well during the New Labour years. In fact, it says on Wikipedia that you gained the highest share of the vote, which I imagine had something to do with you being left-wing, as well as the sheer strength of the Mark Seddon brand, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I think casting my mind back to that time, really, people were in kind of rather sh- were in shock because here is this new leader, Tony Blair. I mean, he got quite a strong amount of support behind him. And people were of two minds. You know, they desperately wanted a Labour government. They were prepared to trust him to do an awful lot, you know, if it meant to get back into power, because essentially everybody really believed that Tony underneath it was just kind of hedging his bets a bit in order to get into power. Quite the opposite. In fact, he, he did exactly what Gordon Brown did in an odd way. We had Ken Clark, who came to a Tribune dinner once at the Gay Hussar. Uh, wow. And he said, he said to us, he said, you see, the thing is very, it's very strange. You know, Gordon you know, promised to, to stick to Tory spending limits during the general election. We all knew that. We all believed that was just a promise for the general election and that he would immediately. But no, in government, he stuck to them. 
Yeah. And it was a scary thing. And it was the same <laughs> with Blair. So Blair, it soon became apparent, really was, it didn't have any sort of left baggage or intention at all. And so I think this was when some of us, I remember Michael Cripp, who was you know, the journalist until recently, yeah. four, he said to me, well, you're going to stand, I understand you're going to stand for the NEC. You haven't got a hope. He said, I wouldn't bother. And he said that at a private eye lunch. And I thought, oh, well, fuck. And he, should, he knows all of his stuff and there's no point. But anyway, so myself and one or two others, we did stand. We put together, with the help of others, of course, this grassroots alliance slate and surged to this extraordinary victory in this new constituency section. Now you just reminded me talking about it. What had happened is, as, as you know, there's that, there's that old adage that, you know, politics is show business for ugly people. And for many years, the NEC elections for the parliament, for the, for the constituency section, had been amongst members of parliament. So you would vote for the, the constituencies would vote for the most popular left MPs, usually, because that's how yeah. it was. Mm. You know, the, the Ken Livingstones, the Skinners, all of this lot would always get voted on. You know, earlier, it would be people like Tom Dryberg, Ian Mikado, you know, Barbara Castle, the, 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 yeah. the Latterly, Robin Cook, Claire Short. So, and then Blair thought, well, we better change the rules. He called this partnership in power. And partnership <laughs> in power, if you recall, was this sort of kind of, I think, kind of neo Stalinist move to strangle the <laughs> party at its grassroots. It just sounds like one of their privatization initiatives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, we're partnership in power. Partnership <laughs> in power. So, they brought this thing in. And got rid of the MPs' constituency section, and 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 very cleverly said, "Well, if you're going to have a constituency section, then we'll give it to the ordinary members to vote for ordinary members, thinking that they could manipulate the ordinary members to vote in all of their people." But the opposite happened, and mm. so yeah, so I I got elected along with some others. Liz Davies was one of them who had been a candidate who they had blocked in Leeds, even though she had won the selection. Pete Willsman, who of course has been in trouble recently, and uh, and, and others. Uh, and anyway, so we got and we had the first meeting of the NEC. I remember this. This was in the Imperial Hotel in Blackpool. And yeah. we went into the room and there were the, all these flunkies looking around, party flunkies, oh, you know, and, and looking at us very disapprovingly. And they sent me and the others to sit on one side of the table. And I realized as I looked up that we were facing the broad open windows the big windows of the hotel were in front of us, which meant that when Blair and his entourage came in, all we could see were shadows. All oh, we could wow. do was to, to put our, our hands across our eyes and squint. And that, that's <laughs> when we had the first lecture about the importance of loyalty to the party, the sort of lecture that Mike Gates would have probably been quite happy to listen to in those times and even administer. Yeah. yeah. So that's what we had. Yeah, we had all of that. So during this time, the sort of new Labour era, you got up to some quite interesting stuff beyond just being on Labour's NEC as a representative of the left. So, oh, is everything working fine? It uh, Well, as the doctor said uh, it, uh, to me just earlier, so there's everything working fine. And I said, well, up to a point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to the doctor. I said, I'm feeling kind of rough. Let me break it to you, son Your shit's fucked up I said, my shit's fucked up Well, I don't see how He said the shit that used to work Won't work now no, it, 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 It's kind of, sort of dropped out briefly But uh, you're back there again now Okay, excellent Well... I was going to say, let's go to 2003. Then I thought, let's go to 2002. But instead, 
let's go to 2001 because this ah. was the first time that you stood for parliament i believe had you stood for parliament before that no i had tried as a number of us did to get selected mm-hmm. in various constituencies because after the great victory the great surge of our grassroots on the nec you know some mm. of us thought well you know let's try and you know let's let's see if we can get selected and we we kind of thought that these we always knew that selections were tough business but we also all thought that they were still quite fair although i suppose we must have thought that we, if we'd thought that we were being a bit naive because the liz davies experience in leeds had surely shown us that actually they were determined to stop people like us getting selected and that was the case time and time again there'd be what they would have as you recall back then i mean the labor party is getting and jeremy corbyn and the labor party now getting this absurd criticism when there's a, a party of about half a million strong, when you genuinely, if you want to get selected, have to go appeal to thousands of members. Back then, if you went to a traditional Labour constituency, you'd be lucky if there'd be 500 members. So what they could do and what they always did is when it came down to the shortlisting, they'd put two people up against each other who they knew would split the vote and they'd put their favourite candidate to run through the middle. And failing that, but if they didn't think they were going to win that way, they'd just stop you. So my experience in South Wales, in Ogmore, now you can hear from my accent that I have no connection really with Wales whatsoever. <laughs> and so legitimately can be accused of being something of a carpetbagger. But given that <laughs> the carpet was supplied by Michael Foote, who said, ah, well, they'd like you down in Ogmore because they like Tribune and Left Wingers. So I went to Ogmore, which, as you know, is still a very deprived South Wales former mining constituency. Yeah. Mm. And there was quite a bit of support down there for a left candidate because they had had this MP called Sir Ray Powell. And Sir Ray <laughs> was one of the wits. <laughs> so he was a, something of a brute. And he used <laughs> constituency out of the Ogmore Labour Club and sometimes this is absolutely true by the way if people turned up wanting to join and they didn't like them they say oh sorry comrade we're full up <laughs> this is um, occasionally there can be the thing of a CLP is run as a kind of personal fiefdom well that's that's what Ogmore was, uh, <laughs> Sir Ray's fiefdom. I mean, I, I'd met Sir Ray a couple of times. I quite liked him in a way because he was a kind of, he was a really truculent guy who had deep hatreds of people for no conceivable <laughs> I mean, he, he kept Ken Livingstone out of uh, getting an office in Parliament for two solid years and kept him in a- <laughs> I mean, his hatreds were legendary. However, he was very loyal to his union, Usdor, the shop workers union, and fought a rearguard campaign for years against Sunday shopping. Not because he was in any way religious, but because it was his union policy. So he was a kind of old fashioned Labour right wing union guy. And by the way, Sir Ray Powell, if he was still being round, would not be running off to the press and whinging or tweeting about Jeremy Corbyn. He would be cursing him to his his favoured friends and comp- but he would never do what these people are doing anyway that's beside the point but anyway Sir Ray sadly passed away in Dolphin Court and I was told this news by somebody who knew him well who has spoke very highly of him he's terrible Sir Ray has passed away he was found in his flat in Dolphin Square with his teacup in his hand <laughs> Mark I'm sorry but you, di- you didn't do these accents on the campaign no, did you no 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 <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the end of it. That would have been the end of it. But I did. So I, had to, I ended up in Nanty Moyle being interviewed by the former agent for Sir Ray called Muriel. And Muriel was this titanic woman, wonderful woman, used to run everything with a rod of iron. 
clearly extremely disapproving of me. And she lived in this terrace house. And as she was, what do they used to do? Interrogate. As she was interrogating <laughs> me with her members of her family and a couple of counsellors around, the, the windows were shaking as coal trucks went by. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, is that I was blocked by Charles Clark, who was then, in parenthesis, chairman of the Labour Party. He'd been made chairman of the Labour Party, despite the fact the post never even existed. Isn't and he that... blocked me. No, no, wait, he sorry. It's, pre- it's president that Owen Smith I think said. Pro- president. Uh, well, no, well, I, he might have been the chair. I just mean, I thought for a second, because remember in 2016, Owen Smith was like, Oh, Jeremy, I'm, I'm going to do the Welsh accent now. Jeremy, if you just step down as leader, then I'll make you president. <laughs> and Corbyn, no, I, Cor- Corbyn yeah, said, no, that's not a thing. No, it's not a thing. You're right. No, there, there isn't a president. We must go back to the chairman or the chairperson or the chair <laughs> of the of the national executive. The chair of the Labour Party was actually, this is boring for non-Labour people. I'm very sorry <laughs> to bore people. But, you know, these technicalities matter, you know, when... Uh, when you're facing the firing squad, is that the, <laughs> the chair of the Labour Party was elected by the National Executive every year. And that person would chair the Labour Party conference. Blair suddenly appointed Charles Clark as chair of the Labour Party. And this post did not exist. And despite a few valiant attempts of some of us to challenge it, 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 it went and, it, and well, it continues. By the way, I, I won't say anything more because I'm totally in favour of Ian Lavery as chair. Yeah, I was going to say, the, um, didn't he get appointed by patronage, basically? But yeah, it's a patronage position. So yeah. and that's a really long and drawn out story about Ogmore. Well, but that's just the story of I was blocked and I was told the reason that I was blocked was because I didn't put in a, a very confident performance and I wouldn't have been able to cope with the media very well. And I thought this was pretty odd because actually I'd done an awful lot of stuff with the media and <laughs> I had a slightly suspicious mind. I suspected the black marks against me would have been because I told Charles Clark and his selection committee, special selections committee. Don't you like that? It's got the <laughs> same Einsatzgruppen about it. The uh, Special Selections Committee. I, I told them that, you know, I was opposed to the Afghan war and I thought that it would last forever and that I was also mm. opposed to continuing privatisation and that I'd say that in, ah. in, in a by-election campaign. Okay. So they let me stand in my home constituency of Buckingham to get me out of the way because obviously I had no hope of winning there at all. I stood against the Tory MP, Mr John Burko. Mr John Burko. Yeah who has reconstituted himself and been reconstituted by the British media into this centrist, Very having much, gone yeah. from the uniformed wing of the far right of the Tory party to somewhere in the sort of soggy centrist middle. Mm. Yeah. He was yeah, he in was... The, the Monday Club, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. he was. Yeah, he was. So then in 2003, it says here on Wikipedia, now we're getting to the David Miliband bit, Oh, record. God. In 2003, Seddon was the first journalist to reveal that extraordinary rendition had taken place in the British Indian Ocean Territory island of Diego Garcia. He repeated the claims for Al Jazeera TV shortly before the then Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, admitted that extraordinary rendition had indeed taken place using the island of Diego Garcia. Yes, I mean, you, you know that Spike Milligan's tombstone reads, I told you... I was unwell. Um, <laughs> my tombstone should read David Miliband, my part in his downfall. <laughs> I, I, that's a good Milligan I would like to, I would like to think that this played a, as a very small role because not that I dislike David Miliband at all. He's actually quite a nice man. And in fact, he, many years ago, he used to play for the Tribune cricket side against the New Statesman back in the days when the oh, New wow. Statesman Tribune used to play cricket. 
And um, <laughs> certainly the, you know, the female members of the Tribune staff who used to turn up to watch the cricket used to think that David was very easy on the eye. And you know, he's a quite a nice man. And I met him the first time when he was working for this commission set up. The Borry, it was called the Borry Commission, set up by John Smith to investigate low pay and low wages and inequality, I think. And I thought, well, he's quite a nice guy. He's slightly disconnected in his, in his sort of phys- his physical movements. You know, he kind of kept spilling the tea when I was talking to him. And mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can relate. Yes, yeah. you can relate to that. Well, we all have our foibles and failings. Years later, I was actually in, there was a Labour MP who caused a huge amount of trouble over the years. And he had a first class mind. And because he was just too smart for his own boots, really, and also used to write a column for a private eye nah. called <laughs> Just In It For The Money. Which which MP was this? Brian Sedgmore, the late Brian Sedgmore. Brian Sedgmore was on the Treasury Select Committee, along with Diane Abbott, and was an early casualty of Gordon Brown's purges against troublesome types on the Treasury Select Committee. He was quite brilliant. But in the end, he sadly, Brian had a bit of a funny turn and ended up leaving the Labour Party. And he bizarrely joined the Liberal Democrats, which is a very, very bad sign. Oh, I kind no. of, because I like Brian, I thought, well, I'd really try, I'd try to get to the bottom of all of this, you know. And anyway, it was after the election. And Brian, within three months, absolutely terribly regretted his decision. But he took me to the National Liberal Club for lunch. <laughs> Tell me his terrible regret, giving £10,000 to Charles Kennedy, the Liberal Democratic Party. And he said he was writing a letter to ask for it back. But really, <laughs> Wow. He said, buyer's remorse. <laughs> he said during the course of this conversation, he said, because we got onto the subject of David Miliband, who features in, I have to pluck my other book. What's that? In fact, I've now gone and forgotten the name of it. Yeah, Standing for Something, which I, I wrote a book about sort of being on the inside of the Labour Party, because Standing for, for Something. And it was illustrated by the brilliant Martin Rosen. And Martin Rosen, I said, Martin, can you please draw David Miliband? And Martin drew David Miliband as this kind of weird, disencobulated robot, which is what Brian Sedgmore said he was too. He said, look, essentially, David Miliband is kind of, he needs to be reassembled, you know. He's kind of a weird robot. And you can say that about him politically. And this brings me to this story that I wanted to tell you right at the very beginning, because as you know, David Miliband is over here in New York, where I'm speaking from now. And in fact, he doesn't live all that far away. And of course, this is the place where the British media keep on expecting him to leave, yeah. leave it, come back and <laughs> the Labour Party. And anyway, so David is here. He runs this charity called International Rescue, which is a very important charity. But I think there is a very strong argument about having ex-political figures running NGOs, especially if they keep yes. on interceding as he does. Yeah. That's, that's my serious point. My less than serious point is that a few years ago, I thought, well, why don't I write to David and see if International Rescue might like to give some kind of award to Ban Ki-moon, the secretary general who I was working with. And David was quite keen to meet for breakfast. And so you, you uh, were a speechwriter for Ban yes, Ki-moon. Yes, I was, work, yeah, so I was a speechwriter for Ban Ki-moon. But I used to organise sort of other events for him and what have you. And so and oh, there's another anecdote I want to get to on that that my friend Max Shanley mentioned to me. By oh, the way. Max, I hope you <laughs> listen to this, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure he will. I'm sure I hope he will. So. He's a great man. He is oh, a... well, he'll be delighted to hear that. And yes. in fact, he told me to send you his regards. Oh, wonderful. Oh, great. But we'll get, we'll get to the Mac we'll get story to in a little bit. So anyway, so I went to breakfast with David Miliband and we had breakfast in the Chrysler Tower at the bottom, which is a fantastic building in Manhattan. I was very excited to go and have breakfast. It it, the trouble is, it wasn't a really posh breakfast. It was a kind of a cheap cafeteria he took me into. It wasn't a really posh breakfast I was expecting. 
But, you know, I'm, I'm not going to moan about that. Anyway, so <laughs> David was getting very animated about the state of the Labour Party. Now, of course, this is when his brother was leading it. <laughs> wow. So he wasn't being rude about his brother, but he was kind of angling away, you know, it's really not going, it's not going right, it's not in the right direction. I can see this deep frustration that somehow we'd all made this terrible mistake and voted for the wrong Miliband. Well, as he was telling me all of this, he dropped his briefcase on the floor. So that was the first thing that happened. So, you know, the whole <laughs> briefcase spills all over the floor, disrupting Just all everything. these bananas and Tilda Rice falls out <laughs> of it, just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't notice a banana, but there was all sorts of kind of briefcase entrails spreading across. The <laughs> anyway, so I helped him pick it up and then we carried on talking and he started fiddling with his pen, his biro. And he was fiddling and fiddling and fiddling and suddenly the thing just exploded. A spring <laughs> here and a bit here and a bit. He just pinged all over the table. Russia. Guy, it is. It goes back to the robot. <laughs> <laughs> the robot construct. <laughs> I think, Mark, that you're not considering the uh, assassination attempt angle, but it could have perhaps yeah. been uh, <laughs> Mr. Putin slash Mr. Milne's boot boys planting a dodgy biro in, in Mr. Miliband's... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on Mr. Miliband's person. <laughs> so yeah. how did the extraordinary rendition... Thing come about to i guess move on to something a little bit more serious but connected to the Miliband biro story how did it's this transpire one of those things. i mean and you and, and you know there, there have been a number of people you'll know this i'm sure you'll, you you've got your bugbear campaigns and the people you know people like in my time who i've really respected like paul foot and tam dl and uh yeah, tony Benn. these are you know the the mm-hmm. These are the, I, you know, people who had these great campaigns and really mm. got stuck into things and had bugbears. But one of my bugbears from quite early on was reading the story about how, in fact, it was under a Labour government, essentially as part payment for Polaris and for not entering the Vietnam War. You know, one of the, the rather sordid sides of this relationship, which was a better relationship under Harold Wilson than, you know, obviously the Blair's relationship with Bush and the Americans. But the part of the deal was that on the independence of the island of Mauritius, the Chagos group of islands, which include Diego Garcia, would be detached and would henceforth be called the British Indian Ocean Territory. And yeah. this island of Diego Garcia would become a military base, an American military base. And essentially, mm-hmm. the reason why that island was chosen was because the island of Aldebra in the Seychelles was deemed off limits because of the giant turtles. And that was another <laughs> campaign, by the way, by Robin Cook and Tam Diel, who saved the giant turtles of Aldebra, but who oh, inadvertently, nice. <laughs> inadvertently led to Diego Garcia becoming this base, which the British leased to the Americans. Well, that's fine to do all of that, to lease the base, not fine to do what they did to make the base, which was to kick all the islanders off. They kicked off all of these islanders. They claimed that they weren't indigenous. One foreign office official referred to them as Man Fridays. They were dumped in slums of Port Louis in Mauritius just to get on with it. And they were supposed to be history. But of course, I was involved in the campaign and still am, you know, all these years on. And of course, the General Assembly here only a few months ago voted overwhelmingly to tell Britain to abide by international law and to hand the islands back to Mauritius. And that, that would thereby enable the islanders to at last go back home, including the large group of islanders who live at Crawley in Surrey. Oh, really? Very large. Yeah, quite near the me. Island. Oh, you're, is that where you are? Well, I'm in Surrey, up. not in Crawley oh, itself. 
Oh, right. Well, and East Grinstead, which is in Sussex, I think, but mainly in Crawley. Oh, that's very near me, East Grinstead. Well, there you go. You must look them up because they have a Chagos Islanders cricket side. Oh, wow. And they're very, very active. (laughs) You know, they're great people. They've suffered terribly. Mm. They're still suffering now, actually. Even in Britain, now they've been told they had the right to reside. They're not getting proper benefits and all the rest of it. But they need to be Mm. allowed to go back home. Anyway, it's a very long-winded way of telling you this story about the... No, it's very interesting. Well, I came across something in a very, very obscure American periodical. I can't even remember. It was a quote from a former US military figures. And whatever you say about the military, and by the way, my dad was in the military, they don't tend to tell lies. They're very straight people. They take orders, but they don't tend to tell lies. And he admitted to the fact, or he said, or he's asked, he said that it was true that, yes, after the Iraq war, Prisoners had been held in sort of troop ships in the British Indian Ocean Territory. He referred also from memory to this camp, special camp that had been built in Diego Garcia to hold prisoners. Now, these were prisoners that weren't being charged and were being trafficked there through extraordinary rendition, as was finally admitted by David Miliband. And the thing to me was the Americans were doing this, as we know, taking them to Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. But whatever the rights and wrongs of the situation, under international law then, the British Indian Ocean Territory is British territory. So effectively, these people were being held on British territory and illegally. And that was the story. And that was the one that was denied. And that was the one that I exposed in Al Jazeera. And I think also in The Guardian, but it was Al Jazeera. And then after that, Miliband, David rather, admitted that extraordinary rendition had indeed taken place on Diego Garcia. Yes, he did. He did. Do you think your reporting put some pressure on him? Well, I think it becomes impossible to lie about these things because you can deny reports in the press and the media. But when it becomes apparent that retired American generals are saying, yes, it's exactly what you did, you can't deny it, you know. (laughs) So uh, that's that's the issue. But this, again, goes to, in, in a funny way, to the kind of centrality of, I suppose, what we're all arguing about, which is the prospect of a Corbyn government, its foreign policy, and its relations with the United States and the military, and also what it means for the situation on Diego Garcia and all the rest of it. And one of the real, real reasons I think there has been so much hostility whipped up against Jeremy Corbyn is because this Labour government, when it comes, and I think we are going to get one, it's going to be very different to previous Labour governments. It's going to take a much tougher view about doing everything a U.S. administration wants it to do. That's not to say that U.S. administrations are automatically wrong. They're not. But this particular one is 90% (laughs) of the time. So the idea that you could have a Labour prime minister saying, well, we'll review this lease that we've just signed with you for another 25 years. We're not sure that it's such a good idea to have this base. That's a decision really not for us anyway. It's the decision for Mauritius who are going to have these islands back. That's the sort of thing that people fear when you disrupt these alliances. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Corbyn himself has always been a big supporter of the Chagossians, hasn't he? And uh, I certainly has. There's a deep embarrassment in the Foreign Office about the lies and hypocrisy that surrounded this issue. The way in which the islanders were never told, there was just action taken to remove them. The secrecy surrounding the Wilson-Johnson talks, the secrecy surrounding what the base actually does, and of course the ultimate secrecy of the way that uh, Diego Garcia has been used for extraordinary rendition um, by the Americans, and the British must have known about it. 
it is not possible that a British commissioner, and there is one, or a British police presence, based at the US uh, facility in Diego Garcia did not know this was going on. If they didn't know, they should have known. If they did know, they should have said, because uh, it was claimed by the US that Britain was not used for extraordinary rendition. Yes, he has. I think I even remember a bunch of them doing a supportive video of him in 2016 when the PLP were trying to get rid of him. Ah, that, well, that's entirely believable. Yeah, absolutely. I, that they, might have, no, I'm just uh, saying that I think you, uh, you'd be right. Uh, there's a guy called Olivia Banku. He's the leader, the spokesperson of the Chagos Islanders. He's a wonderful guy. And mm. I think they are very grateful to those who have supported them through thick and thin, because each time they've won, whether it be in the courts in London or the courts in Europe or the International Court or the one that vote at the General Assembly, which you know I'm working for, they call yeah. it here the Parliament of the World, you know, 193 mm. member states. And OK, it's not binding. Uh, the overwhelming number, uh, the overwhelming majority of the General Assembly member states voted for the Chagos Islands to be given back to Mauritius. It's quite clear. Yeah. One thing, I don't want to nitpick what you say, but one thing that you said was that this current US administration is automatically wrong about everything. Now, obviously, you're being hyperbolic, and it I is am, pretty much true. I don't actually believe that. No, I am. <laughs> no, but it's mostly true, to it's be mostly fair. It's mostly true, but you know, I think that just almost, by, because I think the one thing you have to understand about Donald Trump yeah. Well, there are lots of things we have to try and understand that we simply can't fathom. But there's a reason <laughs> to understand about him, which is that essentially virtually all of his actions are predicated against hatreds of other people. Yeah, uh, and particularly I think that's President true. Obama. So anything that Obama's <laughs> done, he rips up. So when he completely drove a cart and horses through the policy towards North Korea, bizarrely, I thought, well, you never know. If you that look is... back. Yes. Precisely what I was going to mention, in fact, because I've seen some liberals and centrists, that kind of type, attacking Donald Trump over North Korea. And I kind of think, don't care if he kind of kisses Kim Jong-un's ass a bit, you mm -hmm. know, if there's not a nuclear conflict. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? It's a hugely rational reaction on your part. And it's a hugely rational reaction, probably from kind of 95% of the globe which tells yeah. how out of touch some of these warmongers are. And some of these warmongers, mm. I mean, we can talk about John Bolton and the hard right and these the warmongers, but I mean, some of the worst warmongers were the so-called centrists. Yeah. And yes, you're, what you say, I totally agree with. Oddly enough, I did write this piece because I've been to North Korea several times. And That's what I was going to mention. It says on Wikipedia, you were the first foreign reporter to broadcast live from Pyongyang. <laughs> yes. yes. In 2006. I, I'd love to say it was to do a readout of uh, the NEC minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't. But no, what occurred to me when Trump suddenly said, well, I can do business with this guy, is actually this was the same reaction that came from Richard Nixon with Chairman Mao. And there was mm. a breakthrough. There was yeah. a breakthrough. And OK, but people will be the centrists will be despite. I mean, look, what do they want? Do they want a do they want a nuclear war with the North? Because it has. Yes. Got, and it could. Cause, <laughs> they do. Yes. But see, what there hasn't been since Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un started talking, there have been no intermediate long range missile tests of the Tepidong, you know, with the nuclear tip missile that mm. allegedly can reach the west coast of America, but probably couldn't because the North Korean guidance systems are so messed up. Yes. Yeah, so, yes, I, I, yeah, I was being slow. It was hyperbole. You're right. I don't agree with most of what the Trump administration is doing at all. But when it comes to North Korea, I do. 
what were your experiences of North Korea? Did you find it enlightening out there? Well, of course, Mr. Blair and Mr. Mandelson and all the rest of it would say, well, that's just what a Jeremy Corbyn Labour Britain would be like. <laughs> when I went to Pyongyang, the first, I, I, went, I went travelled all over North Korea. I called it the land of eternal happiness. And it's the land of eternal happiness because at that time, there is no way, if you were an ordinary North Korean, that you could know of anything else that was happening elsewhere in the world. I mean, really, you would mention something, you know, even something as anodyne as the Beatles or Victoria Beckham or President Bush. Nobody had heard of any of these things. And if you went to, I mean, I remember we got taken to the National Library and to their music archive. And there are all these people sitting earnestly listening to music in rows. You know, it all been put there. And then there was one empty set of headphones at the back because they were waiting for the inevitable question, which was from one of us saying, can ordinary North Koreans listen to pop music? And they said, of course they can, comrade. And then you put these and then you hear the Beatles on the... But of course, they couldn't. They, <laughs> the whole thing was cut off. It's a, it was a very strange mm. place. And obviously, sanctions, isolation, bitten hard, mm. simple illnesses, could kill. North Korea has gone through a series of very, very, very serious malaria outbreaks, lack of food. I mean, it's really not a very happy place at all. So it's probably quite wrong to call it the place of eternal happiness. I think there's a sarcastic tone to that phrase yeah. that's perceptible. Yeah. But should I tell you my little thing that Max Shanley told me to mention? Please. Please so, do. Max told me that you and him once tried to get Ban Ki-moon to appear at the Durham Miners Gala. Yes, we did. Um, Unsuccessful? Unsuccessfully. However, <laughs> however, this year, I did succeed in getting the President of the General Assembly to make a video appearance from across the Atlantic. And Excellent. She was delighted to do this. I explained to her what the Durham Miners Gala was all about, because she's from Ecuador. And you can excuse them in Ecuador for not knowing what the Durham Miners Gala is all about. But when she heard about it, of course, you know, the UN is very keen on green energy and it's against carbon. And blah. blah. I said, well, the thing is, all the coal mines have been shut, Madam President. It's all been shut. But what? It is. The, spirit. the spirit lives on. And this has got bigger and bigger and bigger. I know because I go there as much as I can and I've seen it go bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's become this fantastic trade union festival. And it's just a wonderful cultural it's one of the great things that happens in Britain, I think. And so she was delighted to do this. And we had this big video up. The new secretary of the Durham Miners is a wonderful man called, and you probably know him, called Alan Margam, who I met years ago at Wearmouth Colliery just before the miners' strike. And Alan is now the secretary. And she gave this message, which went down very well. So we did succeed in the end. The germ that was germinated with Max flowered. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> How does going on real politic compare to going on Have I Got News For You? Oh, it's a much better experience. That I can say that. you, you knew, By the way, but I, when I said that without hesitation, you know that I'm telling you the truth because... Yeah. <laughs> have I got... This is, by the way, this is what... I, did, I went on this thing, I, I don't know how long ago it was, must have been about 15 years ago or something, Have I Got News For You? It was at the time when they were trying to stop Ken Livingstone from running as Labour mayor. And oh, yeah. I was... A right, yeah. Kent for mayor badge, you know, so I immediately became the object for huge amounts of ridicule. I was put on, is Ian Hislop and the other guy, what's his name? Paul Merton. You know, Paul yeah. Merton. Yeah. Okay, so I, I was on Paul Merton's team. And the reality of the show is that they put you in this hotel not far from, it was near London Weekend TV then, it was on the South Bank. So we're in this hotel, in a hotel room with food and drink and blah, blah, blah. And you're shown the clips. You're shown what you're going to react to. And you're given some time because you get there kind of six or seven hours beforehand to go through with your colleagues. 
you know, what you're going to say, the lines, you're, the gags you're going to work out. Oh. So that's what happens. So you do actually get a foretaste. Whereas and with real politics, you've just got sort of 10 minutes of pre-show end. chat about Mike Gapes. <laughs> You're thrown into the deep end with a pair of sharks. On... <laughs> anyway, so on this, have I got news for you? I noticed that Ian Hislop went off. I think he went off. I can't remember the other guests now, but they obviously got on very well, knew each other and spent a lot of time mugging things up. Paul Merton just disappeared and said, I'll see you later, mate. He disappeared. I noticed there were half a dozen bottles of beer outside his... And he just disappeared with the beer into his room. And that was it. So I was left... This is my pathetic excuse to say, if you ever to look at... I've never watched Have I Got News For You ever since. Ever since, I promise you. <laughs> well, horrendous not, experience for me. That you're, um, you're not missing out on much. No, uh, it's, it's only got worse, I think. But it's, it's, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can imagine what it's like in the Corbyn era. It's just all like you turn it on and some wankers just making a joke about how Diane Abbott can't do maths or something. Like, it's just complete shite. Yes, it does get very <laughs> tedious. I mean, the yeah. Diane got into terrible trouble for drinking a mojito on Northern Electrics on the on the Northern Line or something. Yeah, you think, oh Jesus, you know what? What? Yeah. What the hell is all this about? Well, I can't, I can't remember the personality of the people on the opposite benches. Mm. It's a fairly moderate thing to do. Yeah, I can't remember if it was actually us who posted it, but one of my favourite tweets on the matter was where it's like, oh, so Diane can get. It might have been our friend Loki actually, but it was a tweet like, I can't believe Diane got in trouble for that, but Gapes is allowed to do this on the train. It was just Gapes with a massive spliff in his mouth. <laughs> 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 oh, fantastic. <laughs> You've been very open to the pictures of yourself with the spliff photoshopped into your yeah, mouth, yeah. I've got to say. Well, it's utterly pointless, you know, sort of denying, isn't it? You know, saying that I just took a puff, you know. I didn't do <laughs> is there anything else we want to talk about have you got any maybe historic memories of gapesy past run-ins with him that we could touch on because i don't think we recorded all that stuff at the start where we talked about your experiences with gapesy you know i think i was saying i mean i came across gapesy he's one of these people you come across you know and then you come across again you come and you just he just come across because he's kind of always sort of there (laughs) <laughs> I mean, my, my knowledge has been man and boy, I sort of from the, what, what actually, what, what was it, they talked about Bevin as coming from within the bowels of the Labour movement. I think, you know, <laughs> Gapesy is definitely of the bowels type. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really think he's a bowels type Labour person because he was there when I, I mean, he was there in Walworth Road. When the Labour Party had its headquarters in Walworth Road in South mm-hmm. London, he was there. And did he, at one point, was he local government officer for the Labour Party? He might have been when I first met Gapesy. And then I think at one stage he, was, he became the international officer for the Labour Party, which used to be a very, very important role. You know, I'm mean, not diminishing mm. Gapesy anyway, but, you know, once upon a time, Dennis Healy held that post after the or during the Second World War. Oh, well, he'll be one oh, of Gapesy's yes. heroes, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Healy and Bevin, the two people we just mentioned, would be great Gapesy heroes. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> Gapesy was always, I mean, uh, Gapesy's got a nice, quite friendly face. I was always got on quite well with Gapesy, but I could just see in his eyes, you know, I'm kind of weirdly perceptive like this. That there was a kind of lurking disapproval. <laughs> really. Mr. Mark Seddon. <laughs> <laughs> he really didn't like 
Tribune very much. He didn't probably like me very much. He probably thought, you know, this posh boy from the left. Whatever it was, <laughs> Gatesy was not very, very friendly to me. Oddly enough, I was never surprised that he was pro-Iraq war and pro-this and pro-that. But he, in all truth, he's become more and more extreme in his yeah. pro or pro this and pro that things that he's in favour of, which put him to the far right of the Tory party in many ways in terms of foreign policy. And he became more and more and more irate and angry. And, you know, he just he just looked as though he was going to explode. I kept and I think I might have tweeted. I mean, to be fair to Mike, he hasn't blocked me, although he might if he deigns to listen to this, do so. But you know, <laughs> him, Mike on Twitter, Mike, you know, why don't you just do something else? You know, there comes a point in life when if you're so upset by everything and you wake up in the morning, you know, feeling, yeah, you know, this kind of <laughs> bellyache of anger because you've heard milk. <laughs> Sorry. You would, you would think now is the time to go out to grass, perhaps. <laughs> you put yourself out to pasture, pal, in, in our friend Matt Zalb Cousins' words. Just literally gapes, just standing and chewing on grass with a bunch of cows. <laughs> It's an enduring image. Chewing uh. the cud. Chewing the cud. <laughs> you, you see, chewing the cud would be quite a healthy preoccupation. You have to ruminate. The good thing is about ruminates, as you know, is they have two stomachs. Gapesy <laughs> uh, ruminating with two stomachs. I think he could feel a lot better for all of that. A stomach purely for milk. <laughs> Entirely focus on milk with that one stomach. <laughs> Evolution. Yeah, so I don't know where this all ends because you see, of course, Gapesy you know, is part of this great split away with this the, the utterly the most ludicrous man in politics, Munner, <laughs> who of course becomes the most fated by the British press and media. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the way it works. Chukka's now pushed off. He's become the shadow foreign secretary in the Liberal Democrats. Well, it's pathetic. <laughs> anyway, shadow, shadow foreign secretary. Shadow foreign secretary. But anyway, Gapesy. <laughs> Stanley Gapesy now, it must be, you know, who is he left with? He's left Chris with Leslie. Leslie. Chris Leslie, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever had any run-ins with Chris? Another ruminant. another ruminant. Chris Leslie is another ruminant. And totally <laughs> bovine. And then we have the, the MP for Luton, whose name I can't even remember. Is that Gavin Shuker? That's him. Yeah. That's, these are, that's, this is who Gapesy who must have had a great... When he was a scruffy old Cambridge student, I think he was at Cambridge, because my old friend Tim Pendry remembers him as being a bit of a scruffy old lefty, hairy lefty even. But, <laughs> hairy? Wow. But yeah. Wow. yeah I don't, Smooth I hope, as a baby's bottom, uh, that guy. Uh, well, yeah, it's a bit of a thinning process. <laughs> but could he ever have imagined that he would end his life in Parliament, his political career, with Chris Leslie and a bloke called Gavin from Luton? <laughs> Now, I will just point out, Gavin Shooker is not actually yeah, in the current incarnation of Change UK slash The Independent well, Where's he gone? He's an independent MP now. Currently, Are they not just called like, The Independents or something? They're called The Independent Group for Change. It always oh, takes me a minute. I beg your pardon. Sorry, I'm a bit out of touch. <laughs> it's, but it was always changing, to be fair. They've what, spent wait, about... 20 years, every time the left are mentioned in any context, bringing up the People's Front of Judea, Judean People's <laughs> Front sketch, and then they've actually recreated it themselves <laughs> better than any obscure split among Trotskyite sects on the left, you know? In the, they've the, actually the done it in Parliament. Out in about two months. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, who's currently in Cuck then? So you've got Chris, I, I can't believe I'm 
Fuck it. I, nobody talks about Kirk more yeah. than you and me, right? We've done several can't... episodes on him, and <laughs> I've honestly kind of partially lost track. So all that is left in him, okay? The party leader is Anna Subri now, okay? Subes. She was a conservative up until 20th of February this year. Yeah, and then... she's the only Tory, by the way. Yeah. Well, technically. <laughs> yeah. And then you've got the twin towers of the Labour cooperative movement, like Gapes and Chris Leslie. And the then boys. you've got Anne Coffey and Joan Ryan. And that's oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. What a box of delights. Yeah, the, yeah the, the rest of them have all joined the Independence UK, apart from Chucker Omuna and Sarah Wollaston, another ex-conservative, who have just gone straight to the Lib Dems. And what about Heidi... What's her name? Heidi, other... Heidi Allen is now in the other independent group with Gavin Shuka. Oh. Hopefully, tells me on Wikipedia that they are based in Luton and that their colour is magenta. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> you learn something every day with, with this podcast. Hang on, so they're not a party, are they? Gavin Shooker's new independent group. They're not they're a political party. They describe themselves as a cooperative of independent politicians. They have no formal policies. <laughs> only providing administrative support to its members who are bound by its six key values of country first, collaboration, integrity, respect, leadership, and openness. <laughs> All right, and this is just five people oh, as well. There's, there is, there's five people, yeah. One of whom is John Woodcock, you know, <laughs> trying, still trying to worm his way out of an investigation for supposed sexual misconduct. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow, a real rogues gallery. Yeah. My God. <laughs> they, they, they claim a membership, do they? They have some members beyond the MPs? Do they, don't, oh, yeah. they don't have the independents so don't. Change UK have opened themselves up for membership properly now, yeah. I think. At first, they were just taking donations, mm. and even that backfired, because <laughs> one of their first donations was from the lawyer and journalist and incredibly prolific harasser of women in journalism and in sort of London-centrist circles, Rupert Myers, who uh, donated yeah. to them and boasted about it and got them a nice bit of bad publicity <laughs> even before the funny tinge incident on TV. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, if people want to donate to the movement for change in the uk now independently then what they really need to do is just subscribe to our patreon page because <laughs> that's just the only way to really cut out the middleman and make sure that change uk actually gets some media coverage yeah i think we might have more members now than them so mark i don't want to keep you all night is there anything else that you would like to touch on before we go our separate ways well all i can say is that i'm coming back in two or three weeks time to britain i'm i'm hoping that we're going to have an election soon because you know in, in, in all seriousness now i mean it's just mm. i'm now 57 i remember labor governments in the 70s when they were labor governments and i think the labor government although it did some good i'm not going to take away any labor government's going to be better than a tory government but the blair interregnum was a huge miss and lost opportunity i am just so hoping that we can actually get a reforming Labour government in power because, you know, without it, you struggle to think what might happen. I can't remember a country that's ever been so 
unequal and so divided and so in desperate need of something better, better values. And I think that's what we represent. And so good luck. Yeah, (laughs) I fully back that statement. When you say you're going to be in the UK in a few weeks, are you going to be at the World Transformed slash Labour Conference this year? I'm just going to miss that, unfortunately, but I'm going to be back full time from October. So okay, uh, excellent. We'll see what happens, but I'm happy to help. And I'm happy to help go on the speakers' rounds and go and speak to people. I've always enjoyed doing that, by the way. And I just, I just think that also people need a bit of geeing up, a bit of humour. I think that's what yeah. you're doing very well because oh, thank you. It, it's a bit Thanks. of a bloody struggle, isn't it? You know, because <laughs> to say the the, the 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 by the way, you know. If they had somebody from The Spectator commenting on anything on the BBC, they would just say, from The Spectator. If it was from The Tribune, it would be from the left-wing Tribune. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From the far left morning Every star. Time. And then the other thing yeah. they will say about the left, on the right, they often say, this, the left have never got any sense of humour. No, they don't have a joke. They don't have a sense of humour. Well, I've never bought into that. And the funniest times we've had, mm. in many ways, me and other friends and comrades have been around Tribune and the Gay Hussar restaurant in Soho. We used to call it a lot of trouble, but also a lot of fun. And I think <laughs> we just need that because also what people in power really, and the people with wealth and power who don't want to give it up, what they really, really fear most is very, very good humour. And I suspect <laughs> at the end of all of this, this is what Gapesy fears the most. <laughs> just a, an onslaught of milk jokes putting yeah. him out of action for good <laughs> oh, well thanks so much Mark talk. like, wonderful talking to you both really has it's, it's been yeah, absolutely fantastic it's been really fun Mark yeah and right. you're welcome to come back on Real Politic anytime and discuss a whole range of issues from the Gapesist to the more important to the world in general wonderful all the very <laughs> take care Thank you so much, Mark. Great talking to you. Bye-bye. Thanks a lot. Bye, Mark. You're a good kid. You're a good kid. You're a good kid. You're a good kid. And your friend from the North said isn't calling you back yet And you're opening bombs and you're a few beats up ahead of the lap track How are you gonna talk about who's toxic or not? You gotta pick through the pills, you gotta call in the cops The comedian claimed that he forgot all his props And the jokes don't really work well without him We were sleeping on the shuttle on the way to the club and the holy perception of the most precious blood It flooded the rust and it soaked the upholstery The driver made us walk the remainder She came around the corner with a diplomat shake In some kind of crystal container Got mutually assured destruction's oftentimes a no-brainer the drifters in the kitchen We're thrashing through the passion Boys, let's try to keep it on the carpet You wouldn't be so impressed with the sunrise If it wasn't for the darkness You're a good kid You're a good kid You're a good kid You're a good kid 
settled for the first girl that sent you a swing. You bought a little house up on Sycamore Street. You hung around the money until they cut you a piece. You did good, kid. You did good, kid. But the things they didn't tell you when you went off to work. How does it feel? Where does it hurt? You can't see the wires when they're under your shirt. But they're taking down every single detail. He came into the club with the commemorative plates A depiction of the slaughter at Shiloh And the light in his eyes was diminished But they announced his arrival Once the assistant hitched us into the harness The wolves all started acting kind of sheepish Walk up in a bed with a spray-painted mattress Dripping wet with the emotional weakness Single moment gets abandoned and emptied. Every single speaker gets blown, and now you wanna go home. It's exciting, it's young people, it's crowdsourcing.